0: Dying daily, taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing, have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission.
1: It's Sheila Zelinsky.
0: The Sheila Zelinsky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now. Here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this Monday, March sixteenth, 2015 edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show. My guest today is the author of 225th Street and Nightmare in Holmes County, and he is a survivor of two consecutive yet unrelated haunted houses. And through his experiences, he learned to engage in spiritual warfare and deliverance. My guest is Patrick Meekin. Patrick, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Sheila. It's an honor to be here.
0: So tell our listeners about your story.
2: As you stated, I have survived two consecutive yet unrelated haunted houses. Uh, the hauntings were very different in their the source of the haunting in each house was very different. So the haunting styles were very different, uh, but they were equally demonic. I mean, they uh, lots of paranormal activity and demonic oppression. You know, to go through that twice, I think God has a reason for allowing that. You know, when it happened, I knew this, this is not happening by chance. Uh, I know how to deal with it, and I need to share it with others. Because the hauntings were somewhat different, it kind of gave me a... Uh, broader understanding i guess of a lot of paranormal activity and things that people experience when they find themselves in an environment like that
0: it's interesting because the word paranormal sort of denotes like i love these shows on tv where they're always it's haunted it's okay to talk about paranormal and things that aren't quite normal and hauntings but as soon as you say it's demons then you lose people
2: yeah you know there's a, a saying in the paranormal field all views are welcome in the paranormal field. Well, they're really not because um, a lot of people don't like my view. And my view is just simple as you know, there are a lot of things. I agree very much with the paranormal investigation people. There's a lot of things I agree with them. on. my simple difference is I believe that hauntings are always demonic. You can deal with it through the scriptures and a lot of people would rather believe that no, when we die, we, we're not, uh, we're not going to be judged. You know, we don't go to heaven or hell. We can stay here and haunt people and hang out with our family or whatever. And my philosophy is no, we are, we go to one of two places when we die. It is not humans haunting houses that have passed on. It is, or maybe failed to pass on after they died. It is demonic in nature. And, uh, demons can take on the forms of, People, animals, they can move things, they can attack you. There's all kinds of horrible things they can do. And they can take on the form of of loved ones who have passed. They can take on the form of people, you know, and I mean people who are still alive. I've seen them take on the form of my own pets. This one guy was making a delivery one day for DHL. This was in my first haunted house. DHL, to those who don't know, is a company uh, just like UPS, he says to me, I'm signing for this package. And he says, so what do you do for a living that you wear that white jacket to work? <laughs> and I, of course, I'm, I'm probably in a T-shirt and jeans, you know, I'm not in a white jacket then. And I had never met this gentleman before. And I said, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, you know, that one day I delivered a package and you answered the door and we're wearing that white jacket. He goes, are, are you a chef or something? And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. You have the wrong house. That was not me. Now keep in mind, this house was in the middle of nowhere in Amish country. It is not like you would have got that house confused with another house in the area. There's no way. He says, listen, I know it was this house. He said, I swore it was you came and opened the door and signed for the package. And I said, that wasn't me. And th- this gentleman, he was, he was dumbfounded. You know, and I kind of was, too. He saw somebody answer the door, sign for a package. It was not me. And he swore it looked just like me. So there's all kinds of things that can happen in these environments that are really creepy, including, I mean, these things can't hurt you. You know, aside from scaring you, they can't hurt you or kill you.
0: So, Patrick, tell our listeners about Nightmare in Holmes County. That was, although the second book, that was the first house you were in that was, quote, unquote, haunted. Tell our listeners what that experience was like, some of the things that you dealt with. In You were in that house for eight years. Tell our listeners about that experience.
2: Okay. Um, I will say up front, you know, the, the term hell on earth, <laughs> it, it, it has a, a completely different meaning when you're in that kind of an environment. Because not only... The paranormal and the things like that, that, that scare you and really, really bother you. You are in an environment where you are so oppressed. A lot of the times you can't hardly think straight because these things hate you. They hate me. They cannot be redeemed and we can, and they know that. So they hate us. We're made in God's image. So just being in that environment alone, the whole time I was there, there were things happening, but starting from the beginning, we purchased this land in uh, 2001 in the fall. It was a beautiful piece of land in Holmes County, Ohio. The property had, it was large fields. It had been part of a large farm. All these different plots had been auctioned off. We had been saving money for a couple years. And uh, this is our dream. This property is beautiful. We're going to build a home that we designed. This is just going to be you happily ever after, you know. So they broke ground and started early in 2002. Beginning of March, the house was, the basement was finished. First and second floors were completely framed up and the wood uh, siding was completely up. They were completely built except, you know, you had to finish with the roof and the siding and all that as far as the exterior of the house. And uh, we got a call one Saturday evening, a storm had gone through and we got a call from the builder stating that, I'm sorry, but your house was destroyed. It was completely demolished, completely flattened in this storm. And the builder said, he said, I have never seen anything like this. This gentleman was pretty old at that time. He was, I believe, late 60s. And he had, you know, been raised Amish and he had, quote unquote, jumped the fence, uh, meaning he left the Amish religion. And uh, so he had done manual labor and worked in construction and building houses his entire life, you know, from the time he was probably a teenager. And he said, I have never seen anything like this before. Well, I just attributed it to, that was a bad storm, whatever, you know. And uh, so they, they tore tore away all the uh, destroyed wood and started over. Uh, and and they, they framed it all up and everything again. And uh, we did a lot of the work in the house ourselves. We, did a, we finished a lot of the uh, woodwork, the doors, things like that ourselves. And early on, I would go to the house a lot late at night after I got done working all day. Again, the house was in the middle of nowhere. There were no close neighbors at that time. And I would be in the house, you know, working on woodwork, and I would keep having this overwhelming feeling of being watched. It was intense. And I started taking a a radio and playing Christian music and worship music while I worked because it kind of, eased up the tension a little bit but I really couldn't shake the the feeling of being watched and I just thought hey it's a new house you you're not familiar with this area that's all that it is well you know as we start fast forwarding a little bit and we get into the house in the fall of 2002 we started hearing strange noises And uh, I mean, really, they were really creepy noises. And it, 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 I would joke with people at church. I would say, man, the builder messed up our house so bad that when the wind blows, it sounds like we live in a haunted house. And because that's what it sounded like. These noises were creepy and uh, very subtle, strange things began happening. For instance, one night as you came out of the garage of the house into, we had a little laundry room. So I'm in this laundry room and I'm standing there one night and I'm feeding my cats. I had uh, two cats at that point and I'm getting ready to feed them. And all of a sudden the dryer door opens by itself. And I'm thinking I have never in my life seen a dryer door open by itself. How does that even happen? They snap shut. I mean, they latch. I'm sure it was just that somehow that the towels pushed the door open. I, I don't believe that's possible, but I was trying to find an explanation. So, You know, a while after that, and there were little strange things of having those feelings of being watched. Or times when you would think you saw something out of the corner of your eye, but when you looked, there was nothing there. I'm getting ready to go to bed, and I'm feeding the cats. So I fill the food dish, and I see my little cat, Zoe. She's a little calico, and runs over to the dish and starts eating. I walked out of the room, left her in there eating. I walked through the dining area into the foyer. And I turned to go up the staircase in the foyer, and there was Zoe sitting on the top step staring at me. And I thought, there is absolutely no way that can be Zoe. She can't be here. She didn't pass me. I, I, I walked out of there. She was in her eat, and she didn't run past me. And she's sitting here like she's been here forever. So at that point, I'm like, okay, this is really getting strange. Over time, my wife's behavior began to change she began becoming very violent, attacked me physically. And, uh, if you have issues like that and you come into that environment, the demons know what your issues are and they're, they are going to exploit those issues and they are going to attack you where you are weak. Okay. But, uh, the, the marriage ended in a divorce. I would not have divorced without biblical grounds, but I, I did divorce. I I mean, there's no saving this marriage and, I will sell the house and then I'll I'll move on with my life and hopefully be happy again someday. That was in 2007. So I'm still living at the house after the divorce. And once I was there alone, it really was like the wheels fell off of everything because I'm there alone. I'm, you know, there's no family close by. There's nobody to really talk to. And, you know, you're, I'm still grieving. So I'm, I'm just ripe for the pickings when it comes to being tormented. You know, at that point, up till that point, I had, I had believed there's something here. (laughs) There's something in this house. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what is going on, but, um, it just seems to me like there's a high likelihood this place is definitely haunted. Well, in, in February of 2007, while I was there alone, the first incident that removed all doubt occurred. I woke up one Sunday morning. It was the weekend uh, before Valentine's day. And I woke up and the house was freezing and we had had a substantial amount of snowfall for about two days leading up to that. No one had walked around the house. No one had done anything like that. My footprints were completely covered like I was n- never even walked through the yard. So, you know, what is going on? Did my furnace break? I mean, what? I, my house is freezing and I know I had propane in my propane tank last week. It's a thousand gallon tank. It was at 40% full. I have 400 gallons in there. There's no way I went through all that propane already. So then I start thinking maybe my gauge was froze because it was cold and I, I'm out of propane. So I called up my propane provider. He said he, he starts telling me that I needed to check the regu- the event on my regulator on the side of my house, which is where the propane uh, from the tank, goes through a pipe, comes into the regulator and then goes into your house to your furnace. So you have heat. He said, I think your regular, your vent is froze over because of all the cold weather. And all you have to do is thaw it and you'll have your heat. So I go walking out and there's no footprints in the snow. There's nothing. Okay. And right there on the pipe is a shutoff valve. The shutoff valve was turned off. And he said, you shut off your propane. That- that's why you don't have any heat. And I said, you don't understand. I have never touched this thing. As long as I've lived here, I've never touched this. And, and he said, okay, I believe you, but somebody did. And I said, you don't understand. Last night I had heat. Today I don't. This thing was turned off overnight and whoever did it, did it without leaving any footprints in the snow and without disturbing the snow that was surrounding the, the shutoff valve. I said, that's impossible. He said, you're right. I can't explain it. But he said, turn the, turn the shutoff valve straight up and down. You'll hear the gas go through the, the pipe. And he goes, go in and relight your pilot lights and you'll have heat again. I did as he instructed. Everything was fine. But the problem was, okay, how did that happen? That is absolutely 100% impossible. It cannot happen. So at that point, I was like, what in the world? I'm stuck here. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm trying to, you know, I got a, this house is going on the market here in the spring and i'm sharing this house with something that's really really creepy you know and um, basically from that point on i spent just under 3 years trying to get the house sold but while i'm going through all that i mean the activity escalated i mean you you asked for some of the things i experienced i'll give you i'll give you a few examples Uh, One night, I was uh, sitting in the great room. That was the room with the vaulted ceiling. I'm sitting there on the couch across from the fireplace, and my cats are to my left. And, you know, if I look to my right, I can see all the way through the, the first floor of the house, all the way over into the kitchen on the other side of the house. And I'm sitting there eating. You know, I don't have a creepy feeling. I'm not having anything odd going on. I'm just sitting there minding my own business. And all of a sudden, I saw... I'm going to describe it as a shadow, but it wasn't like a shadow. It was dark. It was, it was a, like a black mass and it passed right through, like it came in through the sunroom and it passed right through that dining area and disappeared into the foyer. Now I saw this out of my peripheral vision in the right side of my head. I saw it plain as day. When I saw that out of, at the same exact time I saw that out of my left peripheral vision, I saw both of my cats look up and from the right to the left. Their heads moved from right to left. I knew they saw what I saw and they followed the trajectory of that black mass as it passed through the room. I mean, that is uh, not the kind of thing you really uh, like to have happen in your house. Um, Another incident, it was late at night. I was standing there in the kitchen one night. It was very late. You know, it's pitch black outside and the lights are on in the kitchen and I'm drinking this uh, you know, glass of water and I'd I put apple cider vinegar in it and I'm and I'm drinking it. Again, no creepy feeling, nothing out of the ordinary. But as I tilt my head back to drink, my eyes fall right on the window in the kitchen window behind the sink. And I can see my reflection just as like I'm looking in a mirror because there's no light outside. It's pitch black and the light inside is reflecting off, off the window. As my eyes fell on the window, Behind me to my left, I saw a black shadow like it was standing behind my left, just behind my left shoulder. And it dis- when I saw it, it disappeared in a downward motion. And uh, it, it was like, you have got to be kidding me, you know?
1: So at that and,
0: point, what is going through your mind? I mean, at first, you know, you see your cat's eyeing a trajectory. You know, at first it's the the dryer. Okay, whatever. that's That's fine. Then it kind of moves into some more sort of interesting manifestations. At this time, you're physically in the house, witnessing these things. What is going through your head at that point?
2: I knew that it was demonic. And as as time wore on, I, I was studying my Bible and I was studying deliverance ministry because I was like, my only hope out of this is I got to find out what is going on and I got to deal with it. And I, you know, at the, early on, I had no idea what I was doing. So I, I knew it was demonic. I didn't know what to do for sure. And, now, uh,
0: you mentioned that your house, your physical house that you built, you mentioned it was in Amish country. So is there any significance to that?
2: Yes. Yes, there absolutely is. A couple of things that I believe I was dealing with, one in particular, and this came to me, I believe it was the Holy Spirit showed me this. I was standing outside one day, beautiful day, and, and, and again, the countryside there was beautiful. And I'm outside working in the yard. And all of a sudden, this thought comes into my mind out of nowhere. They're practicing witchcraft. I stop and I'm like, what? And I'm looking around the countryside. You know, it's not like I saw something dark that triggered this crazy thought. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's part of my problem. Or that is my problem. These Amish people are practicing witchcraft. In the book, there's a lot of details I can't get into for, for time's sake, but um, there were reasons why they would started conjuring things and practicing witchcraft against me. There were reasons that, you know, where they, want, they wanted my house, they wanted my property, they wanted me to let them do whatever they wanted on my property. And when I said no, they, you know, I'm in the second largest population of Amish in the entire world and I told them no. And their view on that was, who are you to tell us now? On the surface, there's going to be people who think I'm crazy. If you read the book, there are pictures in the book that are, if I'm crazy, explain these pictures. Because they are clearly pictures from satanic meeting sites and witchcraft sites where they held rituals. I have way more pictures even of other areas in Holmes County on Amish land (laughs) that even more reinforce my belief that they are into these things. And I'm not saying every Amish person is, but I'm saying there's a lot of that in the Amish community and it's covered up and it's kept hush hush because there's a lot of money in the Amish lifestyle because they bring a lot of tourism to Holmes County. Millions and millions of dollars a year. Okay. So, other term kept coming to me, old world witchcraft. That I know this the Holy Spirit's showing me this. Well, my my mother came in contact with a gentleman who was a Christian who had left the Amish religion, and she told him what I was going through and he said, you know, have him call me. So I called this gentleman and a uh, very nice guy and we, we're talking and I, and I was trying to tread lightly because I knew his family was still Amish and I didn't, you know, I didn't want to offend anybody, but I said, you know, no offense, but I said, their their religion's a cult. And he said, you better believe it's a cult. And and I said, and I don't really think they're Christian like they let on. And he said, they're not. And I said, and I, I believe they're practicing witchcraft. And he said, who told you that? And I said, nobody told me. I said, I believe the Holy Spirit showed me. And he said, I can tell you for a fact it's true. He said, my own family does it. He said, I've told my dad that you need to stop doing that. And his dad said, but it works. And this gentleman said, of course it works. The devil has power too. He said, because I got saved and I want them saved. And he goes, I try to witness to them and get some of them born again. And he said, they, they don't believe in any of that. And he said, they call me the deceiver. So that was huge. And I will say this. A lot of people on the surface would say, well, you're a Christian. How do witchcraft work against you? And and two things I'll say there. If you are entirely sanctified and you don't have any issues in your life and you're not living in an area that is already cursed before you're there, yeah, their curses probably are not going to affect you or not very much. But you take someone like me who, okay, your life was just turned upside down. You went through a divorce you didn't even want. Not only did I figure out they were practicing witchcraft, they were coming and physically damaging my property, smashing my realtor signs stealing all my real letter flyers. And I get into the book a lot of details where they, I mean, they tormented me like you can't believe. They would literally sit in their Sunday church service, go home from church and start harassing me on the phone, okay? What, is that a peaceful religion? No, <laughs> it's not. And and um, it came to a point where I stood up to one of them at, through a, a series of events where he was just tormenting me. I f- talked to an old friend who had been raised Mennonite, and he was totally against what was going on in Holmes County. And this gentleman had been involved in law enforcement. And he told me, he said, Here's what you do. He said, You go tell that guy that number one, if he messes with you again, you're going to the bishop of his church. And he said, If that doesn't work, tell him that you're going to the news. You're going to contact the Cleveland news channels. He said, Because they do not want people to know what they really are. So I called the gentleman the next day and I said, Hey, I got a question for you, buddy. And he goes, what's that? And I said, um, who's the uh, bishop of your church? And he tells me his dad. His dad is the bishop. So at that point, I know that option's off the table. So I said, Um, okay. I said, well, have you ever been on TV before? And he goes, no, I can't say as I have <laughs> like that. And I said, well, if you mess with me again, you're going to be. I said, I know all this stuff you've done, that you were behind all kinds of things you've been pulling on me and harassing me. And I said, if it happens again, I'm contacting the, the news channels out of Cleveland and they're going to come down and do a story on you. And that stopped at that point. At least what he was doing stopped. But several days later, Amish people started calling my realtor. And they, they asked, in one case, it was an Amish. You can tell their voices. They have a distinct way that they talk. And an Amish woman called and asked the realtor what I was charging for the house and the property. And he told her and her answer was, well, I want it but I'm not paying that. (laughs) So that gives you an idea of their mentality. You know, it's not peace-loving, God-fearing, humble people. Like, that's what they want you to believe because people want to go to Amish country and see them and buy their quilts or their supposedly handmade baskets that they actually bought in China and said they handmade. And when I'm saying these things, I lived there eight years. These are the things that really go on. Like I said, a lot of witchcraft, Satanism, all kinds of things like that. But there is also... As in any cult, alarming levels of incest, child molestation, animal abuse, women are treated like they're trash. That's the earmarks of cults. They always have certain characteristics, and those characteristics are alive and well in in Amish country. So that was part of what I was dealing with, was there was this whole element of uh, witchcraft that was being done against me. When you have ungodly anger and unforgiveness festering, even if it's for short periods of time where you wrestle with it, but you are engaged, you know, you are giving over to it for short periods of time. Even th- the curses and things are going to work because you have an open door. You have an area where you've, you know, not because you were trying to be horrible, but you're, you know, you're under attack and you're not handling it the way God would have you. And uh, so th- that did make a, a difference. Um, I will say this. And you know, Nightmare in Holmes County took a long time to write for several reasons, and one is it was hard to go back and revisit what I went through because it was literally, it was like hell on earth. And there were times I really wrestled with my own faith. There were times that I tried to give up one God and say, I don't believe anymore. I'm done. I don't even believe anymore. I don't care, you know, and I couldn't stay like that because then, It always went back to the, like the incident where 70 of the, of the disciples left because Jesus' teaching they said was too hard. So they left. And Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You hold the words of truth and life. There's nowhere else to go. And I would have to come back to, you know, I might go through uh, periods of a few hours here or there where I totally tried to give up, but then I had to lay my head on the pillow at night and say, It's not living, trying to live without Jesus. I don't know how people do it because there's no fulfillment in life. There's no joy. There's no hope. And so I would have to say, I am sorry. I am sorry that I had that attitude. I'm sorry that I said those horrible things to you, God. You know, and and I I try to be transparent in the book, and I'm not proud of those those places I went to sometimes. You know, in my uh, depression and oppression, there were times that I bottomed out and blamed God. Thank God for his mercy and thank God that his mercies are new every day. Because I don't know what would have happened otherwise, you know. But, uh, you know, th- when you're going through those times of doubt, of course, your faith is weak. Things are going to be able to work against you. But as it turned out, I was dealing with an even bigger issue than what I was dealing with out of people actively working witchcraft against me. There was a secret behind the property that went back several hundred years that needed to be addressed. And God led me down a path that was ultimately leading to my deliverance. But along the way, I found out, and I, again, I believe it was the hand of God leading me, that I found out the secret of the land that went back several hundred years, and that needed to be addressed.
0: What was that secret, Patrick?
2: I lived near, and I had never heard of this until I met a gentleman that fall Who laid out everything to me. This gentleman had been raised by an Amish family not far from where I lived, but he never joined the Amish church. He had been adopted by the Amish. He had suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of the Amish. And uh, he happened to later marry a a woman that I had gone to grade school with. And, and I knew they were Christian. And so I kind of opened up, you know, when you're in that environment long enough, you know, it, it, I guess it would be the right thing to keep your mouth shut and not tell anybody you live in a haunted house because they might think you're crazy, but you get to a point where you can't help it. You got to talk about it. <laughs> and, um, I started telling her what I was dealing with and she, she said, Hey, I need to talk to, to Dennis, my husband. I think he grew up not far from you. So she said, I'll, I'll have him get a hold of of you if he knows anything. So as it turns out, they call me back a few days later and this gentleman says, uh, he says, Pat, Angie, said that you believe the Amish are done witchcraft against you, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you're right. He goes, they are into all that. So I'm sure you're right about that. But he said, you have a much bigger problem. And I said, what's that? And he said, did you ever hear of the Greenville Treaty? I said, no, never heard of it. He said, look all this up. You'll see I'm telling you the truth. He said, the treaty line runs right by your property. He said, it might be on your property. He said, I don't know, but I know it's right. it's very close to you. And he said, after the Indians lost that land through the treaty, he said, they cursed everything. And he said, the the Amish know it. But he said, they're never going to tell you. And he said, they know it because their ancestors were there when the Indians were there. And, you know, the Amish... There are good things about the Amish. Don't get me wrong. They, there's things that are wholesome and good as far as they the, uh, they do pass on things that are important information from generation to generation more so than the tech savvy, you know, English folks like, like us, you know. So they, they had passed on from generation to generation. Yeah. The Indians cursed everything when they left. And that's how Dennis knew that, because he had been adopted by an Amish family. He explained all that. And I went into a a research mode, and I found out all that was true, found out that the treaty line was very close to me. And I went into prayer, and I started really praying. And I also discovered while I was searching that during the times when, when the treaty line was first put in place, there were incidences where both Indians and English people had accidentally crossed the treaty line, and were killed by the other people, and uh, in, in some cases it involved children. They got lost. They were hunting, and they crossed the treaty line and happened. Like in one case, an Indian boy happened upon some white people. Not, they're English. That's you know whatever. They were English uh, settlers, and and asked them for help. And they they were burning something at that time, and they grabbed him and threw him in the fire and killed him. There were times when English people were murdered by the Indians. So that's all bad. And I started to pray that day, really got deeply rooted in spiritual warfare. And I started really understanding my own spiritual gifts. And there are certain ways that the Holy Spirit will discern things to me. And I will know for a fact, okay, this is the Holy Spirit telling me this. You know, the Bible says if you need wisdom and you seek wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you liberally. He'll he'll pour it out on you if you ask him. And that's what I was doing. And I went into prayer and I, I, I said, show me what is going on. And uh, very strongly, the Holy Spirit showed me that yes, the land was cursed and people were murdered there. And it, what I b- believe I was shown was that Indians had murdered people on the prop, the land that was now my property. And we, it, it came down to an exorcism on the property and the land. And it was undoing those curses in Jesus' name through the power of the word of God and the power of the blood of Jesus. And there were things that th- those two individuals, Dennis and Angela, they had told me, they said, we will do anything we can to help you. And so I said, do you want to come and help me? They believed in spiritual warfare. And I said, do you want to come and help me do an exorcism? Because I said, these churches aren't helping me. They're they're making a mockery of me. and I'm And I'm on the verge of losing everything, including my mind. I need help. And they said, yeah, we'll come. And they came out humbly. And the three of us, You know, I I say in the book that, you know, there are people that would say, you know, we were not priests. We were not preachers. We weren't ordained. How could you possibly take on something so evil that's, you know, infested in that property? But as I say in the book, we were simply three humble Christians who believe that we are more than conquerors because the Bible says that.
0: The Bible is very clear on generational sins of the forefathers. It talks a lot about that. But it's so interesting that when blood is spilled out, it's very interesting. There's a lot of correlation with some of the things that happen on the land. When we think about Lot, land is really significant. Where you pitch your tent is very significant. So you get the exorcism done. You deal with that. I'm assuming you got out of that house. Or did you stay in that house after that?
2: No, you know, amazingly, as I'd stated, it was almost three years that house was on the market. We did the exorcism. It was 17 days later. I was contacted by my realtor. And she said, this was early in 2010. And I had just settled in my mind. I don't know what's going to happen in 2010, but I'm getting as close to God as I can. And I'm going to church. And I was, I got in my car one Sunday night to go to a Bible study and my phone rings. And it's my realtor. And at this point I had changed realtors. It was a female realtor from Holmes County. And she said, um, Pat, she said, uh, somebody is wanting to come and look at your property. And they are very interested. Her tone, it was like, I don't want to get my hopes up, but this is it. This is it. And sure enough, those people within 17 days, I believe it was, after the exorcism, and this was still in the dead of winter, the people contacted me, came and looked at the house within 50 some days. We closed on it and I was out of there.
0: And then interestingly, so springboarding, you ended up at 225th Street. So give us an overview of what happened at that place.
2: Okay. I move into 225th Street. And as I'd stated earlier, I'm going I knew I, I knew I was supposed to write about what God delivered me from in Holmes County and I knew that. So, I'm living in this new house and I'm I'm writing and early on living in that house there were strange little things that began to happen and I would keep telling myself there's no way I could have two houses back to back that are haunted and I know nothing <laughs> followed me from that other house because that exorcism worked. There's no way something followed me. That was that situation settled, it's over. But I kept thinking, my goodness, there's something going on here. And I'll give you early on, there were a couple of things, but one thing in particular. I had been in, it was within the first week of being in the house. And I had picked the bedroom at the top of the stairs to the left of the bathroom. And that is significant. If you read 225th Street, you will understand what, that's a reoccurring thing in that house. And it's significant. But I go into my bedroom. I climb the stairs. I walk to my bedroom door and the door was shut. I opened my door and walked in one night and I lived alone and my bed sitting crooked. And I thought, how in the world did that happen? (laughs) How did my bed get moved? And then I convinced myself, well, my cousin has done some work here at the house, he's an electrician. I'm sure he just came up today while I was at work and did something with wiring and he moved my bed. I'm going to ask him tomorrow. That's all it is. I'm not afraid. There's nothing here, okay? So I straightened my bed, and I laid down in bed, and as soon as I shut my eyes, I had what I believe was a vision because it was not the way you normally picture images in your mind. When I shut my eyes, I, had, I saw a crystal clear image of my staircase that was outside the door, and my door was shut. It's not even like I looked out and it triggered this image. My door was shut. And I could see that the image of the staircase and there was a hooded figure coming up the staircase. And by that, I mean, it looked like a person wearing a dark hood with the hood up. I could see this hooded figure's face. It looked like a skinny old man. Um, he looked like he was dead. And he had a, he was round shouldered. He had his head down and he had a creepy grin on his face as he was coming. He was coming up the staircase. And I opened my eyes and I thought, what in the world was that? You know, I'm not scared. My bed, I'm sure my cousin moved my bed. I'm not scared. Where did that come from? And I shut my eyes. It there it is again. I believe it happened altogether four times in a row. When I would shut my eyes, I would have that image very powerfully in my in my mind. So I then said a simple prayer. I said in Jesus' name, I renounce every sin that's ever happened in this house, and I bind the demons, and I command you to leave. And at that point, I shut my eyes, no more vision. And, uh, you know, everything's fine, peaceful. I go to sleep. Now, I knew nothing about the history of this house. I mean, I knew absolutely nothing. All I knew was that the house, when the house was built, I knew nothing about the former homeowners or tenants. I knew nothing of any of those people. Probably around or just under a, a week later, My next door neighbor came over. He lived two houses down. Really nice guy. And uh, he comes over and he introduces himself. And well, the next day he comes back, which is a Sunday afternoon. And then he says, hey, if you need any help, he said, you're welcome in this community. And if you need any help with anything, he said, "Uh, you let somebody know. He said, I'm an electrician. You know, the guy down there works on cars. The other guy over there is a plumber whatever. He said, we all help each other. If you need help, just let somebody know and we all help each other. And I said, okay, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And he says, well, that's the good news now for the bad news. And now I looked at this guy and I just met him the day before and he could have been easily going to say, you know, the shingles on your roof are really cheap and they're going to need replaced in a couple years (laughs) or something like that. That kind of
0: bad news, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I looked at him, he said, I have some bad news. And now for the bad news. And I said, you're going to tell me my house is haunted. And his mouth dropped open, his eyes got big. And he goes, yeah, man, your house is haunted. He goes, some dude killed himself in your basement a long time ago. And I turned around and looked at my mom and I said, I knew it because I had only to my mom, I had confided. I said, I don't know how something could have followed me from Holmes County, but I just feel like something's not right here. I, this house is haunted and I don't know how it can be. So that gentleman, um, he was very helpful and, uh, there's a lot about him in the book too, because that area not only was 225th Street haunted, their houses around 225th Street were, had issues as well. Gentleman, who was my neighbor, two houses down, because he had a lot of terrifying experiences in his house. Um, after he told me that, I kind of went into a, a shifted gears, and I was like, "Okay, Nightmare in Holmes County is going on the back burner. I'm writing. I'm writing about this house first, and that the, I, I knew God gave me the title. The title's going to be 225th Street." And I am going full speed ahead investigating this house and the history of this house and the history of this haunting. And that's what I did. And I tracked down a lot of former homeowners, former family of, of the that lived in the house, and I, I tracked down the family of the gentleman who did kill himself. And again, when people will say to me, again, well, how do you know something didn't just follow you from the first house to the second? And that's a reasonable question. But I always say, for one thing, that house was haunted from at least, it probably was haunted before this, but it was at least haunted beginning on March 1st, 1958. And I wasn't even thought of yet. I wasn't even born until 1969. And so th- this has nothing to do with me. Furthermore, you can go through the history of the house. When I was living in Holmes County, there, the families that lived in this house were going through terrible torment. So there were, there were all these horrible stories that these other families had. Now, the interesting part is I started my research. None of these other families that lived in that house, when they sold the house, they never told any potential buyers that there was a suicide, and they never told them that they believed the house was haunted, even though they all did. And uh, when they talked to me, I was buying the house from a realtor who had bought it at a sheriff's sale and was flipping the house. So, None of those people had anything to lose by talking to me. And I think it did them good that somebody finally believed them. It did them good to get it off of their chest. And they helped me tremendously by sharing with me what their experiences were. I consider every one of those people that lived there friends. I think they're all good people. You know, they're all professing Christians now, you know, they, but they still suffered when they lived in that house. They suffered. The, the families were tormented. The families were broken up in many cases. And that's kind of the scenario that happens in haunted houses. Demons turn people against each other. A lot of times the families are destroyed because of that.
0: So do you make a separation between haunted houses and people that are demonically afflicted? I mean, do those two go hand in hand?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, there, there's a couple answers to that. One is you can move into a house that is haunted and you're not demonically oppressed or anything on your own at that point.
0: But you will be soon, right?
2: Yes. And the other the other thing I will say to that is a lot of people have, and I mentioned this before, a lot of people have issues that they've never shared with anyone because it's very personal. A lot of people have suffered things that are too personal and they, they're hurt. They Things were done to them or things happened to them that should have never happened. And they're still wrestling with that, but it's not stuff they share. Sometimes they don't even remember all of it. But when you get in that environment, again, demons know. They're not stupid. You know, I think one of the worst things a lot of so-called deliverance people do is limit the power of demons and act like if you say a demon's powerful, you're glorifying them. They're very powerful. And the thing is, they're very smart. They've been around a long time, and, and they know where you're weak, and that is where they're going to come after you. So if you come into that house that already has issues – you may at that point feel like my life's together. I've dealt with that, even if you haven't. And trust me, the longer you're there, they're going to exploit any weakness you have, no matter who you are. I'll give you an example. And that's not just emotional trauma. And it's not just people who are carrying some emotional baggage. That is also people who have had physical ail- ailments. We attempted an exorcism on 225th Street. It was not successful because I didn't know all the secrets of the house at that time. I really wasn't even getting into... The, you know, some serious issues when we attempted the exorcism because I didn't know about them yet. The exorcism went on for several hours. We were trying to be thorough. There's a lot I cover in the book about things that went down during that exorcism that were very, very strange, including I had a vision again of a guy about 30 years old came out of a room. He was wearing a white shirt. He stared me down. I was praying. And I saw this, I had this vision of this guy, and he came up and stared me down like he hated me. And then he disappeared down the staircase. And I stopped praying, and I said to the people who were with me, I said, something just sized me up. And I knew that, and I knew it was demonic. As it turned out, there was a gentleman who died while he lived in that house, at bad accident, because I believe the curse of the suicide that happened there continues to go on. Either it'll manifest through murder or some kind of death or suicide he had died while he lived in the house. I knew nothing about him. He was 30 years old, brown hair, a little bit shorter than I am, medium build, just like the gentleman I had this vision of. And when I talked to his mother, I said, I told her about it. And she says, that's what my son looked like. Do you think it was him? Do you think it was him? And I said, no, it wasn't him. I said, that's not him. But I believe it's a demon that contributed to his accident and they're very arrogant, and they will take on the form of him. They're proud of what they did. And and I believe that's the same case with the hooded figure I had a vision of. The hooded figure, as it turned out, looked like the gentleman who, who killed himself in the basement on March 1st, 1958. I knew nothing of those things when they happened. They're not like it's that person's spirit is still there. It's a demon who brought suffering and torment on individuals and families and they're very proud of what they did and they're arrogant and they will reenact what they did
0: how these people live in so-called haunted houses now it goes oh you know it's just a nice friendly ghost of aunt sally or uncle tom's just clanging around or lurking around and you know oh yeah the tap comes on and this happens but there's just no connection to demonic presence is there
2: No, no. The thing is, it's like when people say, oh, mine are friendly ghosts. I'm thinking, yeah, wait and see about that because they're they're not. They're They're not, not, are they? No. As it turned out, though, as far as the way they will attack you when you're weak or where you're weak, I should say, we're doing this exorcism and we end up in the basement. And at that point, I didn't even know where in the house the suicide happened yet at that point. I didn't even have details on it, really. I just knew that somebody had killed himself there. Um, my mother had had surgery years earlier, had never had, you know, in, in years had not had pain in that area where she had the incision or surgery or anything. When we were, you know, heavily into the exorcism, she started having terrible pain in that same area where she had had surgery years earlier. Never had it any other time. And that's the thing. It's like they know where you're weak and they're going, they're going to hit you where you're weak. And, you know, it's interesting. When I listen to things like, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, there's areas I disagree with them because I'm Protestant and they were Catholic. But I think generally speaking, there, there's things I wouldn't do that they did. But generally speaking, they were, I always felt that they were respectful of the Protestant view and they respected Protestants and they would, you know, they would encourage you to, if you had to address these things, to do it within your beliefs in Protestantism. You know, I bring that up to say when I've heard them talk about when they went into the Amityville horror house. People that were on the news crew that went into that house with them were attacked exactly like what I just described. The one gentleman started having heart palpitations it got he had to leave the house he got deathly sick and it, areas where people had had issues previously that's where they were attacked that's the way demons operate they don't play fair and and they're going to look for the weak area
0: so has this experience obviously you wrote your two books. On these experiences, it's like God allowed you to delve into situations where with houses, with witchcraft, with suicide, death. The overtone is very deep antichrist kind of spirits. Do you Mm -hmm. think that there was a reason that you were thrust in this? What the enemy means for bad, obviously God uses for good. So it's very fascinating that you were put in these situations I'm sure that a lot of people don't talk about this stuff when it really comes down to it, because oftentimes they're written off as kooks, right?
2: Exactly. You know, I do not believe I could have found myself in those environments unless it was God's will. In the first house I had to come to grips with, I have spiritual gifts of discernment and knowledge. I, I know yes I always had these weird feelings and I would know things growing up but I never knew what it was and I just kind of wrote it off well it turned out it's it's discernment and knowledge which are great Gifts if you have to engage in spiritual warfare and deliverance on a certain level, it gives you an upper hand over the enemy because a lot of times the Holy Spirit will show you what the, what these demons are going to do to try to interrupt the exorcism or the deliverance or to try to uh, there 's been times with people that I helped I knew what they had, I knew like what the stronghold the strong man demon that they had in them was I knew what its name was in one case, the very first exorcism I ever did. I knew I was going to, it was going to come down to, I was going to have to help this individual. And I told my mother, I said, I know what she has and I know the number six is significant, but I don't know what that even means. I just know those two things. And as that exorcism came to pass, yeah, I knew exactly what the, the strong man demon she had was as a, uh, Matter of fact, the number six was significant because that demon had come into her bloodline because of uh, curses from her ancestors six generations earlier. How did I know those things? When I say that, that does not glorify me in any way. It's all God. Because I look at myself, I know where I'm weak. Right. I know where I have issues. In my eyes, I'll be being totally us I'm pretty pathetic. If I was God, I wouldn't have picked me to help anybody. But the bottom line is, all the glory goes to God. And you're John Wesley— John Wesley dealt with, and you know, you don't hear about this in the church and a lot of the Wesleyan, the churches that came from the Wesleyanism or Arminianism, really. But uh John Wesley believed in casting out demons and he did it. And uh, he he at one point said basically that, you know, God will choose who he will to administer deliverance to people. And sometimes he will choose those that the world would never choose because that way all the glory goes to God and not the individual. You know, it's like, okay, Wow, that guy's kind of goofy, but my goodness, God just worked through him, and that person got delivered. And it's because the glory is not to me or or anyone who's doing deliverance. The glory is to God. When I have a word of knowledge or something like that, or I discern something and it turns out to be true, that's just a gift that God put in me that operates. And that's it's like it's neat, but I, I see myself as who I am with my own limitations and my own weaknesses, and I think that's how. It needs to be, because in deliverance ministry, it is it is easy, I think, to get arrogant because you are commanding demons and they listen. And, the, you know, the devil would love to sow, sow seeds of pride because then that's going to end up being a weak spot, and it will probably hinder you in deliverance after that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that the things I've been through happen by chance. There, there are stories of people that I came across that I knew for a fact God put me in their lives and. Circumstances changed because God put me in their lives. But had I not gone through the terrible things I went through, I wouldn't have known what their issues were. I wouldn't have known how to help them at all, except I had to go through those dark times and suffer to really get it. And the other thing is when you've been there, you can not just sympathize with those who are suffering, but you can empathize with them because you've been there and you know what it feels like. There are times I've talked to people who are suicidal and I can actually get down on their level and say, listen to me, you have to see the big picture here. You're, you're made in God's image. Therefore you have value and God's got something way better for you than what you're feeling right now. And what the devil's telling you right now, there's something better you, but you have to hang in there. And the thing is, I can say that and mean it because, you know, if I didn't have my beliefs, I'm sure the devil would have loved to have driven me, especially in that first house, he would have loved to have driven me to the point of suicide. But because of my beliefs, I would get rolled down. There were times I prayed, God, please just take me out. Put me out of my misery, please. You know, and I meant it.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, and that's the thing about depression, oppression, repression. These are very serious afflictions. And that is what is so wonderful that God is using you now for spiritual warfare and deliverance. And, you know, you've had these encounters, these manifestations. And so it gives you, obviously, a little bit more of an insight and a knowledge into the way that the the devil works, the spiritual warfare, the affliction, how, how demons operate. And I think that kind of, that whole culmination gives you Uh, certainly an insight that others wouldn't have. And I think it's just a very fascinating story. And folks, I want to really encourage you to get Patrick's books. It's very fascinating. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your stories with us.
2: I greatly appreciate the opportunity.
0: Patrick, do give out your website for the listeners.
2: Okay, it is uh, patrickmeekin.com, and that is spelled P-A-T-R-I-C-K-M-E-E, dot com, And there are links on the website to pick up Kindle versions of Nightmare in Holmes County and uh, 225th Street. Or you can, at this point, purchase a second edition, soft cover editions of 225th Street as well uh, from the website. And you can contact me if you have questions or if you do
0: need help in some way. Well, I think that's wonderful that you all also do offer yourself to help people that are facing similar situations. And I know I get a lot of emails about situations of houses and things going on. So it's really wonderful that people can get in into contact with you. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Patrick. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me. I do greatly appreciate it.
0: Folks, Patrick Meekan's information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. Kent Hovind was on the Alex Jones show today. I did record that. And I hope people go back and listen to, I think it plays throughout the day, so please do try to listen to that. And I hope that everyone, again, contacts Congress, gets in touch with that judge, and demands Kent Hovind's release. If we put enough pressure and we make some noise, we can do that. we got a great lineup this week, folks. Pastor David Langford's on tomorrow. Charlotte Isserbitt is joining us this week. Just an exciting lineup. Today I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite clips from Paul Washer. Thank you so much for tuning into the program today and a shout out to the worldwide Christian radio audience. Good night and God bless.
1: False teachers are God's judgment on people who don't want God, but in the name of religion plan on getting everything their carnal heart desires. That's why a Joel Olstein is raised up. Those people who sit under him are not victims of him, he is the judgment of God upon them because they want exactly what he wants and it's not God. And you can line them all up along with him. That's where it is. For ourselves, teachers in accordance to their own desires. So you get a Benny Hinn in there who all he wants to do is tell you you're going to have a Mercedes-Benz. Those people aren't victims. He is God's judgment upon them. They want what He wants. And so they accumulate Him to themselves along with all those other teachers because they teach exactly what they want. Do you see that? You boast in the fact that God has children running around all over this country full of carnality, steeped in sin, doing whatever they want, and God does nothing according to your preaching. But they're saved, bless God. When you preach their funeral, you'll preach them straight into heaven. I've seen it a thousand times. I remember just a while back, a man in my own town in Illinois who was a known drug addict, drug dealer, fornicator, absolutely everything. And he is there, he passes away. And the pastor of one of the largest Baptist churches in the area, standing there at funeral, but that place is loaded with every person that's hardly ever been in church. Drug addicts and everything you can imagine are all there in church to honor their dead friend. And that pastor gets up and he says, I praise God, I know this young man, he sowed a lot of wild oats, but when he was nine years old, I was there when he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he's in heaven today. And all those lost sinners went straight out into the streets. Justified in their sin because of conservative, evangelical, Baptist preaching. That's typical in almost every church in this country. It's true. It's true. And it's pathetic. You say, oh, that's mean-spirited. Let me ask you a question. My mother passed away last year. But I remember three years ago when I went to the doctor's office with her because she thought something's not right. And that doctor very gentle, very noble. He looked at my mother and he says, "Miss Washer, he goes, you've got cancer, and he goes, uh, it, it's it's radical, it's bad, and we've got to move right now if we're going to have any chance of saving your life. I want you to know that man made my mother cry. He hurt my mom. He ruined her day. We were going to go out to get something to eat. He ruined her week." He tore my mother to pieces! But he tried to save my mother's life. And if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't been so truthful, she'd have had no hope of salvation whatsoever. We'd have had no recourse at all. And he could have been kicked out of his own practice for being immoral. They ought to kick most pastors out of their practice. Because out of cowardice or self-preservation, they will not preach the Gospel. That's all there is to it. This job's not for cowards. It may be for wild men and fools, but it's not for cowards. I'm telling you there's too much at stake. Too much at stake to allow this to happen any longer. And it'd be different if it was happening in churches that denied the deity of Christ or substitutionary atonement. But this stuff goes on every day in in men's churches who hold to these truths but when they get to the Gospel, they just seem to lose their minds. This country is not Gospel-hard. This country is Gospel-ignorant because most of the preachers are Gospel-ignorant. It's just the truth. That salvation is not merely the change of practice. It doesn't even begin there. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not New Year's resolutions. It's not this strong conviction to want to be a different person. None of that. Salvation is a supernatural work of God whereby someone really does become a new creature. Really, that's not poetry. It's not poetry.
0: The Sheila Zelinsky Show is sponsored by Stevequail.com, Offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting stevequail.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed.